0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of This is the Future. My name is Dayo Moyo. I trust you had a super splendid and productive week. If you've experienced what it means to be in a Nigerian boarding school or you've read or heard any story of a Nigerian border, you know that the Nigerian boarding school is not for the faint-hearted. On this episode of the podcast, I spoke with Bumi Ashaolu author of Surviving Saju Mako a Nigerian boarding school odyssey we spoke about what it meant to live within the corridors of the OAU campus have parents who were highly educated and who took education very seriously what it meant to not only attend a boarding school but to be the assistant head prefect doing everything to bring sanity into a place with gross indiscipline more importantly we spoke about what happened when despite best efforts things spiraled into a riot this is a really beautiful discussion and i can't wait for you to listen let's get into it already hello sir and welcome to this week's episode of this is the future it's a pleasure having you on today's episode And first and foremost, I would love to congratulate you on the writing, publishing and launching of your book, Surviving Sergio Marco. The way I would love to start this interview is to ask a question that most people would usually ask at the end of the interview. And that is, when should we expect a second book?
1: So I think when I was introduced at the launch, this was also the final question that was put at the uh when when my bio was being read, I um <laughs> yeah, the truth is I don't know. <laughs> I think there there are maybe some ideas in my head about what I could do with the second book, but I didn't necessarily intend to go down the author route. But then I found that I had something to write about Tajamaco, hence this book. So it is possible to write other things, but I think I, I've not con- consolidated any ideas as to what I want to write next. To.
0: Now, no doubt there are a number of fascinating characters in the book surviving Sajo but the one I loved most, or the one that kind of speaks to me more, is the character of your grandmother. And there's this part in the book where you talked about how your dad came to you at the boarding school to tell you that Grammy was dead, but not just that she has been buried. And you were really unhappy about the fact that you were unable to attend um, a barrier. And so it brings me to the question. Now, can you talk to me about your grandmother? And can you also talk to me about when she came into your life and how you felt knowing that she would no longer be a part of your life?
1: Thanks, um, uh, my grandma was a sweet angel. <laughs> she, um, as far as I can remember, she lived with us very early, in my childhood, so I think she probably came to stay with us when I was, I'll probably say maybe six, seven, and she was living with us until she, she passed away. Um, but it, they were they were really good, fun years. She had a balanced approach to life. She grew up. She was born, I believe, in Abaekuta, but um, she married into a family in Ibada and was very well educated. She was a nurse. She was. She had come to the UK maybe as far back as the 50s, then back to Nigeria. So she was a very disciplined, well-mannered uh, human being and just very, very loving. Um, so to know I've been there when she passed away was, yeah, it felt like something was ripped away from my heart. <laughs> um, and I described how it felt a little bit in the book. Uh, and then in a way, I I had to move on. But yeah it's uh, I still remember very fondly to this day <laughs> this is my my maternal mom my grandma
0: now talk to me about your parents now you mentioned in the book that both of them met in Cambridge and so I was wondering I know that this was the period where many Nigerians had the opportunity to go outside of the country for educational purposes but I was also looking at for example my dad my dad could not attend school even when he wanted to because his parents or his father particularly wanted him in the farm. And so I would love to know more about your parents, um, the kind of family they came from and how they met in Cambridge, how they returned. And I know you mentioned in the book that your dad had to take a job in the university and your mother worked as a civil servant. Can you take me on that journey, please?
1: Okay, my parents' backgrounds are quite different. So my mom grew up in Ipadon. Um, As I've described my grandma, my mom came out of a family that was well-educated. Well I think my granddad on my mom's side was a school inspector. In fact, there were times when he would come to Ondo State and do some work there and then go back to uh, or, uh, Oyo State as, as it was uh, back then as well. My dad's side, uh, his dad, my granddad, was a farmer, a cocoa farmer and they are from Elisha. My granddad had seven wives and I don't have any kids. Um, and my dad was from the first wife. But once the primary school education was done, my granddad basically handed over any additional responsibility on studying to the wives. So m- my dad had more of a rough educational up- upbringing. My, my, my dad, didn't wear shoes until he was in year one of secondary school. He, he got into OAU. My mom trained, that, trained as a nurse, by the way, since she university. But my dad did very well in IFA. He had a first class in zoology. After he finished in IFA, he went straight to Cambridge to do a PhD. He didn't even realize that there was so much prestige about Cambridge. So he just rolled into Cambridge. <laughs> and my mom had... Gone to Cambridge town as well to do some midwifery uh, training, and was living with her brother, who was a pretty well-read lawyer at the time. So that's how they were introduced, um, and you know, very different backgrounds. <laughs> I guess love conquers <laughs> all. Right. So that's how they met. And when they came back to Nigeria, they settled properly back in Ife at the university,
0: right. Now talk to me about growing up in Ife. You mentioned, and I, I, was, I was watching an interview you had with one of your friends in school um, this afternoon, and then he mentioned, as, just as an aside, that you were like, seen like a buttered child whilst in school. Okay. Talk to me about what it meant to grow up within the university campus.
1: Yes, thanks for that question. We definitely were in a bubble you didn't have to leave the university campus to carry and living in your life. You didn't really find many parts of the university grounds that was not covered in vegetation, for, thick forest, grassland, um, um or, or tarred roads. So unlike town, where it's a mix of on tarred roads and tarred roads, campus was just a, an Eden, in a sense. Uh, But you didn't really realize it because it was just how it was. And there were so many of us kids of lecturers who were, it was like your own community and it felt normal, like this is how normal it is. So if you think about the the drainage system uh, next to a road, where those existed in Ife, they were always covered. There was no open gutter anywhere. There were no overhead electric cables that were dangling anywhere because a lot of these were underground, So it, it was a model of what, I guess, <laughs> what, what, what Nigeria maybe could be. I mean, there, there were just too many things that made this universal environment a pleasurable, beautiful, scenic <laughs> place to grow up.
0: Now in the book, you told us of how your mom enrolled you and your brother in a tutorial center whilst you were in primary school. And at the tutorial center, we had Mr. Emmanuel. Mr. Emmanuel, you said, was a very, very, very strict teacher. But it was obvious that he wanted the best for his students, at least academically. And then when you transitioned from primary school to Sajomako, you highlighted how in the class you were one of the best students. And so it kept me wondering: do you think that in spite of the rigor at Mr. Emmanuel's place, the strictness that going to mr emmanuel's tutorial gave you an edge that's something extra that helped you academically when you finally went to secondary school what do you think
1: yes it, regardless of how tough mr Emmanuel, aunt ellen um, and a certain uncle Collier were, we have to say that the way they drilled us hard prepared us very well for secondary school, at least academically. Um, They built on whatever work was done in primary school, on the university campus and staff school, Um, but they took it to another level. They really pushed us very hard so that by the time we arrived in secondary school for me or in San um, you you knew you were more likely to end up being in the top 10 regardless, and it wasn't just me there were at least uh maybe 5 to 6 of us who were you know were in my year from um from OEUF it was a blessing to have been in that um tuition or tutorial group but um it was more work than 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 fun
0: did you send your own kids to a boarding school or if you had the 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 ability to choose maybe in your GSS too, to continue in boarding school, do you think you would have continued?
1: So I, I, I would try and separate the questions um, for some reason. So for, for my kids, I have three kids. The oldest is going to year three, and the middle, that girl, is going to year one this September. Would I send them or choose to send them to boarding school? I probably wouldn't more because of the risk that I think children face today in terms of how quickly society is evolving. So even for day students, you have to invest a lot more time in understanding what your children are going through and talk to them about things that you feel actually that their innocence has been robbed of them today. Talk less of if they are in school. So we would rather tell our kids, tell us all the horrible things that, you've seen or streamed things, so that we can be the ones that provide you context and explanation, as opposed to someone else who may be in the school or not, who has a value system that's very different from us. So that's the main reason I will be more worried about sending anyone away from home for an extended period of time, because if we in Satchimaco had the experiences we had at the time where there was no phone, no internet, I just can't imagine how much more difficult it would be for a child to, to to deal with some of these life issues because of the internet. For me, this is too what I've continued. I think there was a camaraderie that you can't discount when you're in school, even if you are terrified of some aspects of it. The fact that your friends are also in the same boat and you can see some seniors who used to be juniors who are now seniors and seem to feel like life is good gave you hope to carry on. So I suspected that I would probably have carried on
0: boarding school right and this um kind of touched on something i wondered a lot about i was asking myself there was a place in the book where you you experienced something in the boarding school and you're like oh wallace did not tell me about this he, he, he never mentioned this in his stories do you think like whilst you are going through that experience of boarding school like you went through um at Sajomako you kind of want to make it um, look beautiful on the outside. So whilst you are telling the story, you kind of fade out those things that are not real good, exaggerate those things that are bravery, those sort of things. And so in the moment, you blend everything, the not so good parts, you make it, no, the bad parts, you make it not so good. And then your experience is kind of nuanced until you go out of the school and kind of look back. Um, what do you think about this?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think maybe there's a bit of a bias if you're a student who is experiencing something that's not extreme. So if you're experiencing mild bullying, because it's not as bad as someone, else, someone else's bullying, you see their extreme bullying story as a, almost like a script for a movie. So yeah, so maybe there's a little bit of what, adrenaline rush, excitement yeah. um, that comes with some of these stories that you will hear. And you, I think you pick this up when you speak to people who haven't been to boarding school who hear stories from their friends who've gone to boarding school. Even if the stories are, are terrible, there's an excitement that comes with hearing some crazy story uh, that you're not involved in or that you're not the victim. I mean, even when you look at whether it's you know novels or movies, the more challenging, dangerous um, events or stories tend to attract an audience. <laughs> so there's a bit of, oh, I, I was an actor in this movie. you know. So there's a bit of that that I think comes with the school. But when you leave and you look back, you i think you should at least at the minimum ask some questions about how life was and whether as a nation it's not just the school this setup was wholesome for the kids that were going through it
0: now let's talk about Sajomako. so it seemed to me i really did i think you mentioned it but i want to be clear on it it seemed to me to be two different schools um then put under one umbrella. So I want to really understand the dynamics of, of the school, Sergio Marco, and um then to just make it kind of come alive in my mind, I also want to know if you if you if you can remember the school uniform of the school and, and those sort of things. Um,
1: yeah. So before St. John Mary's Unity Secondary School acquired that name and I entered the school in 91. So it, You know, you go back to maybe 1985, 84, was when the first Unity School students, essentially, who were the SS3 students when I was in SS1, um, began at St. St. Mary's. So before that, it was a combination of two colleges training teachers: so St. John's College and St. Mary's College. At some point, they merged the two colleges, and at one point, um, under state government, when Obasanjo won, right, back then, the first time Obasanjo was won um, in the country, the schools were taking over from the um, missionaries or the missions because it was an Anglican mission. So they took it over um, and it then became a government school along with nine other schools in those State, so unity schools. So there used to be St. John Mary's College, but then the name transitioned to St. John Mary's Unity Secondary School. So Sajomako is an acronym for the uh, college days. It just has a ring to it that we use as students more than Sajomuso.
0: Right. Now, there's something I kept wondering about as I read the book. I discovered I, I was kind of surprised. So I don't know if you deliberately um, kind of silenced that part or that was the norm in, in school. So I was surprised that the only time you mentioned girls, in the book was when I think you were already, you were already the um, head prefect. And then there was this time you said two girls were seen in the hostel. And I was wondering in a boarding school, even in a, in a day school that I attended, I, I can still remember vividly the escapade of classmates with girls, stories, writing of love letters and the rest of that. But it seemed not to be, like a scene in the book so i want to know was it was the guest school cut off from the male school or was the it it didn't look or it did not look like there was so much discipline in the school to kind of um cut down on those excesses of young people so i would love this to be kind of sorted out for me
1: there are two parts uh in the answer to this question so everything you described definitely went down or went on and must have gone on because you know we were normal human beings as well i think when reading this book people need to realize that this is a memoir so it's my account of an experience through this school of us well five to six years so a lot of it will sound similar to what other people's experiences are but there are departures that reflect the individuality of people's stories so i never wrote a love letter to anybody i didn't really bully anybody I didn't cook in the hostels I I mean there was just many things that I didn't do so if I felt that the story was interesting for the book I will put it in so for example there's a bit where I refer to the crush that one of my friends who's a girl had on a classmate in her class (laughs) and what that did to her emotionally uh, because Back then, they didn't really allow you to interact properly, even though you were in the same class or same year because it was frowned upon, taboo, blah, blah, blah. But people still did try. They got bold as, obviously, they got to be more um, senior. But there wasn't any story that was interesting enough to fit, oh, sorry, sorry, to fit with this survival theme that I wanted to focus on for the book. And I made, I made this point clear in the preface that I, I wanted to stress that this book is specifically trying to explain to people how as a child you went through the school and you wanted to get through to the other side and read the promised land. <laughs> um, but in my own experience, the girl side of things didn't feature that much. Um, yes, I did have good girlfriends, but we interacted meaning in choir um, when we went to that when we went out to, to sing or do some drama. There wasn't enough of an exciting story <laughs> to put down is why it's missing. <laughs>
0: Right. Were you a good boy growing up? Like a good, good boy?
1: Well, I, I guess you, you, I think most people will say I was because it's very hard to think of something that I did that was really bad. Maybe a product of maybe this Ife thing or something. I don't know. But I, I, I generally was more on the didn't really break any rules thing. And I think also maybe because I I found faith quicker than many people. So I was in a a, a choir group that was quite famous in, in Ife called uh, Happiness Club. It, this is before i even got to or this, this is a group that will go to many places in nigeria sing songs and record them so i think there was quite a lot of exposure to faith based moral teaching that almost guided one to not do some crazy things that other people were trying to do so i think that's part of the reason
0: now talk to me about how you started singing and playing the keyboard when did you begin learning this and um was it something you caught on in church or was it something your parents deliberately got a music teacher for you? Was it in school? Can can you just tell me about that?
1: Yeah, someone gave us a very small wooden um piano, very, very small toy. And within a few days, I was playing Blessed Assurance um, on the key on the on the piano. I was probably seven. So my dad decided that he didn't have any musical, anything, right? <laughs> so he you know what, let me just connect this boy with a classically trained musician on campus, a man called Godwin Sado. In Ife at the time, other kids like me to play the piano. Uh, at some point, I think Yemi also, my younger brother, who's called Yem Stein, was also dragged into that. So it was my dad that actually put me through some piano lesson. Um, So I owe that to him. Now, a musical, but... That keyboard training or piano training really um, set me up nicely. In fact, in my first year in um, Sanjay I won the music prize. (laughs) And it's it's mainly because of this.
0: Now, before I talk about your dreams growing up, especially knowing that you were from like an academia background, uh, I want to know about what you think about one of the things that happened in the book. This time around, you were the head prefect. There was this guy, I can't remember his name, who had been... Um, either expelled or or rusticated and then it was still found in school and the principal decided to strip in naked and flog him and then you were there you were the head prefect, trying to control things trying to make things seen in school you were the leader but after the whole thing kind of spiraled into something that was more, more or less like a riot you we are blamed for it, maybe not outrightly, but as a young person who at that point was a leader and was doing the best he could to make sure things are what it is, and then it just went out of your control. What lessons did you think take out of it if you took any lesson?
1: So I was the assistant head boy. So um, the head boy was a, a chap called Beodoro Adankin we complemented each other quite well because he was more of an orator, Um, I was more of a strategist, and um, we were actually two of the youngest people in our year. To try to hand the governance baton of the school to relatively young people in their year was a risk that the school authorities took because I felt that they needed to maybe pick the people that they felt had shown maybe... Enough from a character point of view, a character building point of view. So our group was obviously um, trying to restore, which we did, and maintain order, which we tried our best to do. But there were many of our mates who were frustrated with the pace of that change and how our teachers—let me put it this way—elders in Nigeria in general sometimes can be very overbearing um, on youngsters not to say that the youngsters were not a problem in themselves sometimes i mean i look at my kids today and sometimes you really want to just discipline them more so the, the students were not necessarily free of blame but from their perspective the teachers were a bit too harsh um so yeah so this event spiraled out of control essentially i think if the prefects had the opportunity to vote on give a view a collective view and stance on what the principal did we would have told him not to do it but he's the as i put in the preface is the adult in the proverbial room so that responsibility unfortunately fortunately lies mainly on the school authorities but because we were part of the governing structure of school a lot of our mates obviously will see us as being a participants in what went down so even though they were sympathetic in some sense later, you could see us trying to build bridges. Um, that thing really affected a lot of people in our set. And I think is the one defining thing that people remember about our set, regardless of all the good change that may have happened before. <laughs> so I think the lesson is more, yeah, I mean, you have to carry people along. And I, I think to, to some extent, we, we did some of that, some, but and I, 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 I think I described this tension of trying to make sure that you, you you're trying to govern whilst also being firm and in this case an external force essentially um pulled the rug from our feet and we obviously came tumbling down <laughs> so i think people just need to be careful about carrying as much as possible people along if they, they find themselves in front and need, needing to lead people is the is the takeaway for me
0: right so what was the dream like for you were you thinking of following in the footsteps of your of your parents did they have any influence on the career path you were thinking about what was the dream of young bumia shalu
1: i just wanted to do very well um in my studies but i didn't necessarily have a specific goal in mind in terms of career i definitely knew that i didn't want to do something along the lines of medicine because it requires a lot of memorizing. I just wasn't interested in that, even though I actually scored at the time, A1 in biology, in SS2, doing the final exams a year and a half before my finals. So it wasn't like I couldn't do the, um, the exam and pass and do very well, but I knew very early on that I'm not gonna be spending my life memorizing things. So I wasn't sure what I was gonna do exactly. I think when I filled my jam, I think I must have put computer science with economics or something, which my dad kind of suggested, Just not, not because we knew it made sense, but it was just something that we thought, okay, maybe it made sense at the time. Uh, fast forward to me leaving Nigeria, uh, because the timing just meant we left Nigeria, just after I, I finished school. I came to the UK. Uh, within a couple of years, I was having to make the same decision again. But By then, I think my mind had concentrated better on maybe the sort of subjects that would lead me to a a disciplined university that i think i i need to pursue uh, but again this is a sort of i'm not really sure what i want to do so i'll pick something that i think may help me later which is why i ended up doing chemical engineering because it combined chemistry maths um some aspects of physics as well um, so that that's why i ended up uh, studying chemical engineering
0: so it seems to me that you and your family left for the uk immediately you finished your ssc and I know from reading the book that Wallex was probably a year ahead of you. So I was thinking within myself, did Warlex miss a year of schooling? Because if he finished a year ahead of you, he should have either applied to the university or is in the process of applying to the university. Can you help me resolve that that part of your story?
1: Correct. So when it was one year ahead of me, so that's his real name, but the nickname is Walex. So he was one year ahead of me when we were in uh, in Satchimaco. But he used to be two years ahead of me, uh, if we go back to the primary school days. But because I had a double promotion with a bunch of other people, that gap became one. But it was one year all through Satchimaco. By SS2 in 1994, 95, 1994, there was no, the urge to do a a GCE, external exam, um, external final exam was not as strong. Um, Maybe a few people were trying to do that sort of thing before your final year exam in SS3. But by the time we got to my year, we had seen what potentially was possible if you attempted the final exam in SS2 outside. So usually when you finish SS3, you'd probably take a year to do JAMB and everything else um, and then prepare for university. But my year group was so aggressive in how quickly we acquired knowledge that we we had our O-level exam results from the GC already, even before we finished secondary school. So we had that ready for university. JAMB, we were also doing it with my older brother, Alex's year group. So, we, we were just too aggressive in chasing after those guys. That's why, in a way, I caught up with Wale whilst he was um, having this one-year standard normal year after secondary school. But then, when I finished, we came straight to the UK, so we had to go and do A-levels. So, at that point, both of us were essentially in the same year.
0: Oh, now it makes sense. It makes sense to me. Now, let's talk about transitioning from living in Lagos to living in the UK. Now, there's this small line in the preface where you talked about moving from a spacious space in Lagos, Nigeria, to living in a flat in the UK. And so I would like to ask you, what were the obvious differences between living in Lagos, Nigeria, and living in the UK as a young Nigerian?
1: Um, we, we had our own house, in Ife. Um, in the UK, my mom had come to the UK to work, so she was living in a counter flat, a flat inside a huge block of flats. So you didn't have your own garden, you didn't have your own backyard. It was just a, you know, a flat on maybe the sixth story, you know, sixth floor of a massive story building. So, and the, the sizes was small because it's cold in the UK <laughs> uh, most of the time. And there were four kids, you know. Um, Yes, the house we were in was, we had maybe, you could say four rooms, but one of those rooms should have been a dining room. So our living room was very small. Compared to what felt like a palace, it was a bit of an adjustment and things were not necessarily cheap here anyways. So it it, switch from what felt like a nice, lovely experience and life in Ife to a more constricted, a city life
0: so did you really know why your father for example was living a very unquote and unquote lucrative or prestigious job at the university for the uk and if no were you able to figure out over the years why you actually left nigeria for the uk
1: um we knew that nigeria was getting really difficult i mean this was a bunch of years it was it was tough so you could see and it was my dad saying, okay, my mom has been requesting for a while that maybe we should rethink this strategy of just carrying on in Nigeria. And she had the opportunity to bring us over when the immigration rules allowed it. And my dad eventually said, Okay, you know what? Let me agree with you. So so he came with us to the UK. But my dad prefers to he would rather give service in Nigeria to Nigerians than to be here. So within a few months, I think maybe three, six months, my dad actually Returned to Nigeria and carried on lecturing um, in Nigeria. He just retired uh, last year.
0: <laughs> wow, that's interesting. So you were for the long path, um without dad in the UK, just with mom.
1: Uh, that is correct. So that move from '96. Uh, well, the, my mom's move in 90, 1990 started changed this the face of our family in a sense because once my mom left in nineteen ninety, I didn't see her until. 1992, I think, June. So the, the fabric of the family just looked different. You just had to cope with this strange setup. And then when we got here, my dad obviously went back. So it was really with mom. Um, and you have teenage boys you know, with their mom and my sister who was going through her own puberty changes. It wasn't easy for my mom. Um, I mean, we were good kids, but it doesn't matter. I mean, we were still kids. Um, without dad in the house, it, it wasn't easy for my mom. My mom was not a very patient person, actually, even though she's, she's a nice human being, but she's not the most patient person in the world. Um, Yeah, so my dad was largely not in the house um, whilst we were doing our A-levels or, or those things. Um, and um, whenever he had a break, he would come to the UK and you know assimilate back into the house there. But by then, you know, we effectively had to live our lives surviving without my dad in the house it's a bit of a miracle that we still turned out okay but i knew many people tried this experiment and it didn't work out
0: right but does it go back to something you mentioned in the book that mom was a bit the adventurous type and dad was a bit conservative correct now let's talk about the differences between um the education for your o levels as sajomako and the A-levels preparing for uni, what were the obvious difference? I know you mentioned in the book that, for example, you were giving lengthy answers to one point or one mark questions. Um, Aside this, what were the other differences departure from a boy who had this education in Nigeria and someone who was pursuing an A-level to go to the university?
1: The, the school I went to here, the, uh, and with Wallex as well, actually, uh, it was, it, you could say public school in the sense that um, anyone could get into it. I'm, I'm using that word public school specifically because I think most people in Nigeria would understand what I mean. In the UK, it can mean something different, but it just means anybody could have access to this school. We were easily the brightest people in the school, straight, immediately. It was very obvious. Um, so in a way, it sort of was easy to to be number one, whereas in Nigeria, you have to really uh, watch it because there was someone that was probably going to try and take your your rank if you don't work hard. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was a, maybe a little bit more relaxed, but the pressures of trying to just survive as a family meant that I also had to do some part-time job, which meant, yes, you were doing your work in school, but you also had to be doing the work on the side. So it, if you were not careful with that balance, you could be swayed by some of the slight money you are earning on part time job um and mess up your grade so it, it was a bit more delicate here um and you had to grow up much faster but it was yeah it, I mean, it was different but i think the 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 foundations that we had in nigeria really really helped us and set us on the path to be
0: successful now let's quickly talk about post university i'm wondering how were you able to transition from chemical engineering to finance uh,
1: so kemenj was something I did because it combined the subjects I felt most comfortable with. But beyond studying for that Imperial, the banks provided a, a new kind of challenge um, and us Imperial people tend to like taking on challenges. <laughs> but on top of that, if you were able to solve those challenges very well then you also got paid well. So it was a no-brainer to say, okay, you know what, this is coming up, let's let's go and attack it. Um, and you're more likely to be working in the city as opposed to well, maybe a town far away from the centre. So I'll be closer to my family if I took a banking or finance job than if it, if I took an engineering job. So that's, in the end, why I went into the investment banking industry.
0: Now, what was it like working with Lehman Brothers, the fourth largest investment bank in the world, at least at that period? Um, And um, was this fresh out of university? And were you working in the UK branch of the bank?
1: Yes, I was working in London and it was straight out of university. I was um, a research analyst um, looking at companies in the technology sector, specifically semiconductors. So, Companies that make uh, chips that go into phones, cars, industrial machines, um, laptops, computers, <laughs> yeah.
0: So, um, were you there when Lehman Brothers finally got bankrupt? And um, what was now the transition for you to another job?
1: Yes, so I was there when Lehman blew up. Thankfully, well, on the European side, for the part of my business, um, a Japanese bank called Nomura bought Lehman Europe and took us over. So I was with Nomura for a month, but just before Lehman had blew up, I had actually received or had some discussions with some firms who were focused on Nigeria or West Africa. So I took a job uh, with um, FCMB's subsidiary called CSL Stockbrokers. So that was already in the works just as Lehman was about to blow up. So within a month, I left Liman Aonumura and joined CSL. So uh, they became my new employer in Nigeria, uh, even though I was still based in the UK, but I would travel to Nigeria uh, pretty often. And a few years, a few years after that, uh, a year and a half later, I joined um, a similar setup in uh, the first bank of Nigeria groups, um, investment banking it's called FBN Capital.
0: So was it during your time at FCMB you had a relationship with CNBC? Because if you go on YouTube, you would see a number of videos of yourself um, speaking or making comments on the show.
1: Yes. So um, I, because a lot of the work I did was writing research and commenting on the banking sector and um, supervising other analysts who are writing research on Nigerian stocks. That's why you see me um, visible quite a bit on CNBC Africa, um, but today I'm, I supervise the group that sells ideas, um, helps execute the uh, purchase and, and sale of stocks, and also the research team for the same FBN. It's called FBN Quest Capital now. So I don't I don't go out with a view on stocks anymore because I supervise the group that do it.
0: Now, this brings me to the question that kept ringing in my head whilst I read Surviving Sergio Marco. And it is that, so you left Sergio Marco, you went to the UK, you did A-Levels, you graduated from the university. You had this beautiful career, worked at um, Lehman Brothers, worked at scmb Now you are working with First Bank. And so it kept me wondering, do you think you succeeded? And I'm using succeeded very loosely because I know it means different things to different people. But do you think you succeeded in spite of Sergio Marco? Um
1: It's tempting to say in spite of Sergio Marco because the stories that you read about Sergio Marco in the book are the are the almost dramatic stories, and there were lots of negative ones. But the positive stories from San Francisco are the reason why I would say that any foundational seeds that were sown when I was in primary school and with Mr. Emmanuel and the other students um, actually was built upon and accelerated. Yes, Nigeria was deteriorating and affecting us, but a bunch of us in my year group decided to carry on reading ahead of class. At lunch yesterday, the head boy um, was there. Um, so anyone who had read a sample of this book would see him in the flesh with some other of my Sgt. colleagues from that the, the same book and that period. So we're still in touch. The bond is still very strong. Um, so even though the challenges we faced um, or the surviving that we did to Sajamako was sometimes a bit extreme. I would not say it's in spite of, I'll say that um, it definitely helped forge uh, what you see in me today and many of my classmates and colleagues. So yes, they were tough times, but I'm, I'm so grateful for them.
0: Right. Now let's get to how can people get the book online and is it also available in physical stores?
1: At the moment, the easiest way to get uh, this book in Nigeria is via Roving Heights um, and their website address is www.rhbooks. So Romeo Homer uh, books.com.ng. If you search for Surviving Tajimako, it will come up. Um, price is 5,000 naira and if you pre-order or buy now, you will be able to get your copies from September 6th onwards um if uh, so so we're planning to get it into other um physical stores but it's probably going to take a little bit more time um for that to happen but roving heights is the easiest way to get the book uh, at the moment if people have some links outside nigeria um this book is everywhere so it's on amazon it's on apple books it's on google a uh, Play Store. It's um, it's in audio format. It's in paperback, uh, Kindle, um, uh, even as far as Barnes and Noble, Target, Kobo, Rakuten, <laughs> Indigo. It's it's everywhere.
0: Right. So that kind of um, kind of <laughs> make me want to ask this question: What was the publishing process for you? The writing and publishing process, and um, how were you able to not just consummate the idea, or not just think of the idea, um, to write, to have relationship with publishers, to pass it to a publishing house for it to be approved. Can you, just in summary, tell me about that?
1: Yes, so this is a self-published book. So I am the publisher. Um, I did pass on the manuscript to agents who were supposed to look at it, and if they liked it, would pick it up and talk to a publisher on my behalf. But in a way, this story is a bit narrow, and the publishing industry, at least in the West, is dominated by non-Nigerians or Westerners. There are some publishers in Nigeria that are established as well, but I felt that when I started getting the standard response from agents, that, oh, I'm not sure I can fully represent you, I told myself, this is like a problem I'm trying to solve when I was at the Imperial. There are enough tools out there that I'm sure I can use to get this thing to a standard that you will not know the difference between um, a publisher publishing this book or me doing it. It will look as good as what they would do. And I just need to put my mind to it and I'll solve this problem. And that's exactly what I want to do. That way, I maintain the authenticity of this book in terms of it's been Nigerian, but written for a global audience. So I did not dumb down the pigeon. It is pigeon if they spoke pigeon. Um, if there's a Yoruba um, idiom or proverb, I'll put it there and if it's long enough I'll provide a translation but if there is a, an expression that's part of a mannerism that we find in daily life in Nigeria like um, help me go there uh, let's say let someone say um, go there now or bring it over here Joe, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a translation of the Joe because that's how we speak. Um, so if you really want to understand us, go and look up a dictionary somewhere because we do that when we pick up a book that someone put some additional words that are not necessarily English uh, in. So for example, if you put some Latin in your English writing, we go look it up. So it's not too hard for you, if you're not a Yoruba person or a Nigerian or Igbo person or Hausa whatever, to go look up some of our words, it's fine, you survive. So the book is very authentic. Um, you see the, the cover design was done professionally. And the editing was done to the highest possible standard that you find in the, in the industry as well. <laughs> and the typefacing as well was done professionally. Um, so, as I said, this is a problem that needed to be solved. And in a way, in my head, if I pass out of Imperial, I will crack this as well.
0: So, final question, especially for the listeners listening to us, how do they connect with you on social media? Are you on social media? If yes, yes. What are your handles on the various social media so that whosoever would love to send you a message, read from you, can be able to connect with you?
1: Yeah, my um, handles on um, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, it's at thebumiashaoli, at the Bumi Ashaoli.
0: Thank you very, very much for taking our time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you for sending me a copy of the book in advance.